I'm passionate about presenting the Christian faith as true and intellectually satisfying to my students. And hell is a major sticking point for many of them. Why would a good God send people to hell forever? It seems harsh. And it can be presented as an intellectual objection, but it's also something that you feel in your bones. And hell is harsh. In Revelation chapter 14, for those who reject God and worship the beast, we're told that person will also drink of the wine of God's anger that has been mixed undiluted in the cup of his wrath, and he will be tortured with fire and sulfur in front of the holy angels and in front of the Lamb. And the smoke from their torture will go up forever and ever. The Bible's metaphors for hell, Jesus speaks of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Isaiah ends with an image um, where he says, the worms that eat them will not die and the fire that burns them will not be quenched. In other words, it will be a place of constant decay, but the decay never reaches an end point. It goes on forever. Or Paul speaks of eternal torment away from the presence of the Lord. Hell is so terrible that theologians have searched about in the Bible for some sort of escape clause. Maybe a second chance, or a parole, or an annihilation where you cease to exist. You won't find such a thing in the pages of Scripture. Every time hell's duration is mentioned, it's forever and ever, or everlasting. Or maybe some suggest hell is just a metaphor for the destruction of evil in the abstract, not a place where real people go. But in Revelation 20:15, if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, that person was thrown into the lake of fire. There's no escaping it. Real named people will go to hell. Some of them will be people that you know. God forbid it may be some in this room. Which strikes many of my students as unjust. So you're telling me that I should worship a God who tortures people forever if they don't worship him. Like a nice God that you've got there. Or in the words of the cosmic skeptic, a YouTube atheist, what crime is worthy of eternal punishment. Are you going to tell me with a straight face that if I curse God when I stub my toe, I should burn until the end of time? It's a good question. And even Christians who don't have that kind of glib dismissal of the teachings of the Bible can still wonder, really? Hell? But the infinite nature of hell only makes sense when you understand the infinite nature and worth of God. The message in a single sentence um, can be summed up this way. The glory of God is so beautiful, it makes sense of his judgment and calls us to enjoy him forever. God's glory is so beautiful, it makes sense of his judgment and calls us to enjoy him forever. Or in three main points, his glory makes sense of his judgment because 
It's so beautiful beyond even the capacity of words to describe, which then calls us to enjoy him forever. Open your Bibles to chapter 4 of Revelation, and we'll pick it up in verse 1. That's Revelation chapter 4, and we'll pick it up in verse 1. After these things I looked, and there was a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, so that I can show you what must happen after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and a throne was standing in heaven with someone seated on it. And the one seated on it was like Jasper and Carnelian in appearance. And a rainbow, looking like it was made of emerald, encircled the throne. In a circle around the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on those thrones were 24 elders. They were dressed in white clothing and had golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came out flashes of lightning and roaring and crashes of thunder. Seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God, were burning in front of the throne. And in front of the throne was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. I'm arguing that the rainbow, emerald, thunderous, crashing glory of God explains why hell is just. Now, justice demands that punishment fit the crime. So let's consider the crime against the crime of sin against God. Now, when I work through this with my students, I have a whiteboard. Um, we'll have to make do with Microsoft Paint. Uh, let's imagine that I were to spray down this desk in front of me and kill 99.9% uh, of the germs here. Um, now, a mass bacteria genocide um, would not require punishment because bacteria natures uh, do not have that kind of value. Um, the, the punishment would be nothing. Um, but what if you failed to honor a cat? Suppose you did something horrible like punted a cat off a bridge. Um, maybe some of you would cheer. Some of my students always say, like, no punishment for that. Um, well, it turns out that felony animal cruelty is one to five years in prison, and that seems to match with our moral intuitions. Uh, the Proverbs say that uh, a righteous man cares for his animals. And so, yes, uh, an animal does have some value. Um, what about failing to honor a human nature, supposed through racism or violence? Well, the just penalty there for taking a human life, um, that's death or life in prison. In the Noah story, uh, they get off the ark, and God's forming up this covenant with Noah, and he tells him, if anyone sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And then he gives the reason, for humans were made in the image of God. Humans are deeply valuable, and so, to dishonor them requires serious punishment. Now, what if I disrespect the one of ultimate and infinite value? Well, justice would demand an infinite 
punishment. Do you see how the nature of the one offended makes for a different punishment? And so if we understand the infinite glory of God, then suddenly hell starts to make sense. An offense against the infinite glory of God requires infinite punishment. Well, what is it about our God? Here's a description in chapter 1 of Revelation. His head and hair were white as wool, even white as snow, and his eyes were like a fiery flame. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp double-edged sword extended out of his mouth. His face shone like the sun shining at full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. What you're saying when you say that hell is too harsh, you're saying, I don't believe that Jesus is of ultimate worth. But if you could see the Lion of Judah standing on the throne as though slain, as all heaven falls down before him in worship, you would say, yes, to offend that infinite glory, hell is only just. Now, the reason that hell will never, will never fully get there, our intuitions will always feel like, really? It still seems harsh. The reason it will seem that way is because we can't see the glory of God. We can't experience the depth of that wonder. After the golden calf story, Moses comes to God and he says, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, Yahweh, in your presence. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And so God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock, and as he passes by, he gives him just a little glimpse of his back. And then when Moses returns down off the mountain, his, the reflected glory is shining so bright that the people of Israel say, put a veil on, because we can't stand it. God's glory is so beautiful, so precious, it would kill you to see it. So there will always be a gap in our intuitions about hell related to God's glory because there's this gap in our experience. The other reason we have a hard time with hell, we don't know how dark our sin is. Or at least because we live with it all the time, maybe it becomes commonplace. You've spent your whole life excusing, downplaying, blame-shifting, rationalizing, minimalizing. Uh, maybe you've labeled good evil and evil good. And then you look at hell and say, like, well, that seems harsh. Um, but of course, our sense of justice is, is miscalibrated, uh, and we've trained ourselves this way. In the glorious presence of God, people see just how sinful they really are. In Luke 5, Peter comes face to face with the divinity of Jesus. Uh, there's a miracle where, they, where he casts down his nets on the other side and he brings in this huge haul of fish and he gets to the shore and he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, 
I am a sinful man. Face to face with divine glory, he realizes the depth of his own sinfulness. Or Isaiah, he sees the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple, and then he says, woe is me, I'm lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. If you could see the infinite glory, you would say, yes, infinite punishment is completely justified. Or the the way Paul puts it, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So let's dive into the infinite beauty of God's glory in chapter 4. The glory of God is beautiful beyond the capacity of words to describe. So verse 3, and the one seated on it was like jasper, which is a green stone, and carnelian, a red stone, and a rainbow looking like it was made of emerald and circled the throne. Interesting details. Should we imagine God red and green, like a traffic light? Uh, Or uh, the rainbow looking like it was made of an emerald? Should I imagine just like a extra green rainbow? Artist renderings of this scene fall short of the majesty that John's trying to convey. And for a technical reason, he's limited by human language. Uh, Let me give you an example. Imagine you're in the Australian outback and a Ferrari zooms past a Aboriginal Stone Age tribesman. And he sees this and he goes back to the village and then he tries to describe the amazing otherworldly sight that he saw. Uh, Maybe he'd say, it was loud as thunder. It was fast as the gazelle. Parts of it looked hard like stone, but other parts were clear like water. And it was shiny like the back of a beetle. Now, that's not a bad description of a Ferrari. But do the other villagers have in their brain a picture of a Ferrari? Of course not. They've never seen a car. They don't have that concept. And so when we read Revelation and we read things like, he was like jasper and carnelian in appearance and a rainbow looking like it was made of an emerald encircled the throne. We read of flashes of lightning and roaring and crashes of thunder. That's beyond us beyond even our capacity to imagine. Ezekiel has a vision with four living creatures mediating God's glory, just like John. And he sees God's mobile throne chariot, and there's wheels within wheels and eyes all around. And the chapter ends, brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down. Notice the degrees of separation that Ezekiel describes. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. In other words, whatever's in your head when you try to imagine this scene is wrong. Or if you were trying to imagine a beauty so great it would kill you to see it, your imagination will always come up short. John speaks of a door standing open in heaven. It's a revelation. Uh, 
it's where we get the word apocalypse, which in English means the end of the world, but in the original language, it means an unveiling. It's like opening a window into an alternate reality. Or maybe think, maybe it's like seeing the matrix source code. You're seeing the reality behind what you see. And with heaven open, we see the players in a great drama of redemption. Kelly and I like to see the Shakespeare plays at Ewing Manor. And uh, they, they give you a little play playbill with a rundown of the characters so you don't get lost in the Shakespearean language. And here in Revelation 4, we get a cast of characters. Verse 4. In a circle around the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on those thrones were 24 elders. They were dressed in white clothing and had golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came out flashes of lightning, roaring and crashes of thunder. Seven flaming torches, which are the Spirit of God, were burning in front of the throne. And in front of the throne was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. The 24 thrones, with the 24 elders on them, are likely referred to humans. Eight times when white robes are mentioned in Revelation, they refer to humans who have overcome by the power of the Lamb. To the church at Sardis, Jesus says, the one who conquers will be dressed like them in white clothing, referring to humans. 24, because they represent the 12 tribes of Israel of the Old Covenant and the 12 apostles of the New Covenant. So there's this unity of victory and ruling authority that Jew and Gentile will share in the new creation. And then there's this odd line about the seven burning torches, which are the seven spirits of God. It's an image from Zechariah that we're not familiar with, but it represents the Holy Spirit. So in Revelation 1, we get a Trinitarian formula. Grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. So that's the Father. And from the seven spirits before his throne, the Spirit and from Jesus Christ. So in our cast of characters, we have a triune God and humans. That's not all the players on the stage. Verse 6. In the middle of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second creature like an ox, the third creature had a face like a man's, and the fourth creature looked like an eagle flying. Each one of the four living creatures had six wings and was full of eyes all around and inside. They never rest, day or night, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is still to come. What John's describing are the cherubim, Cherubim stand guard at the boundary of heaven and earth. When you see them, you know you're crossing over from human space into God's space. They're different from the angels. Angels, when they show up, they look like humans, and they're messengers and servants. Cherubim are the guardians, and they take the form of creatures. So we see them in the Adam and Eve story. It's the cherubim who guard the way to the tree of life. 
In the tabernacle, there's instructions for carved cherubim to remind you that you're crossing the boundary into holy ground. In Isaiah, God is enthroned above the carved cherubim of the Ark of the Covenant. Again, it's a, it's a boundary marker. In Ezekiel's vision, the cherubim have four faces, cherub, human, lion, and eagle. But in John's vision, they take the form of a lion, ox, eagle, and human. Tim from the Bible Project says this creaturely form means that they are symbolic representations of all the creatures of the earth because all creatures show God's glory. All of creation is a praise song to God's glory. So it's fitting that the guardian worshipers at the heartbeat center of God's glory would take the form of his creation. Then in chapter 7, we're introduced to another set of characters. And all the angels stood there in a circle around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they threw themselves down with their faces to the ground before the throne and worshiped God. There are different classes of creatures. Angels and cherubim, they're not the same. And so what we have is three different types of sentient creatures. It's like the men, the elves, and the dwarves of Tolkien's world. And in this mighty company of human cherubim and angels, they throw themselves down and worship God. It's otherworldly glory. You pull back the curtain on reality, and our world is a lot more like the Lord of the Rings than you might expect. We see through a glass darkly. They see face to face. They see it all. They never rest day or night saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the all-powerful, who was and who is and who is to come. And they have eyes all around, which I take to mean that they see the whole breadth of God's glory. And taking it in, they can't help but respond in worship. Now, it seems repetitive, right? Day and night, they never stop saying the same thing. Maybe you've complained, like, maybe our worship songs are repetitive. Um, Are they going to get bored? I I don't think they're bored. They behold beauty itself, and they can't help but cry out. The glory of God calls us to enjoy him forever. I think these cherubim are the happiest creatures imaginable. We tend to think of praise as the giving of honor. Uh, But as C.S. Lewis points out, all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. So if you listen to the things that people praise, their lovers, an amazing movie, a game-winning touchdown, praise is a way of enjoying something. When we watched the NFL last season, uh, Ella would clap for every touchdown. Uh, Even the Patriots, she would clap. And uh, C.S. Lewis says, um, praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Watching football is more fun with a cheering toddler. 
With their eyes all around, the cherubim see a new aspect of God's glory. And enjoying the depth of infinite beauty, they spontaneously break out into praise. It's like what we do when we see an incredible touchdown pass. Now, a skeptic might object to God calling on his people to praise him. Uh, In the words of one YouTube comment, I present to you narcissism. It seems odd that God would demand that we praise him. What is he, full of himself? But no, by calling us to praise him, he invites us to find infinite joy in the one who is of infinite worth. Of course God calls us to praise the one of infinite worth. To praise anything else is the definition of idolatry. The more epic the touchdown pass, the greater our enjoyment of it. And the more we understand, the deeper we go into God and his word, the more enjoyment we'll find as the more we see of his glory. And there's profound healing for the soul to be found in praise. By claiming that all glory and power and honor belongs to God, I'm renouncing my own claim to those very same things. And by joining the heavenly company of Revelation 4, I reorient my heart to the true source of joy. Everyone who sins is seeking joy. As Paul puts it, the fleeting pleasures of sin. In the Proverbs, sin is about shortcuts to fulfilling my good desires. So lying to protect yourself is the shortcut to a good reputation. Theft and stinginess, the shortcut to riches. Substance abuse, the shortcut to pleasure. Laziness, the shortcut to good rest. The adulterous woman is the shortcut to sexual intimacy. Gossip is the shortcut to friendship. You think you're bonding over the hatred, over the shared hatred of a third party, but what you're really doing is throwing logs onto the fire of strife. It will burn down community. Pride is the shortcut to glory and honor. In the Proverbs, Solomon argues that fools take the shortcut to their destruction. And the best vaccine against taking stupid shortcuts is to fill up on the real thing, to have the real joy. No one who's full on a fancy steak dinner desires Cheetos afterwards. It's why Pastor Jeff warned us not to give up the habit of meeting together. This is the closest approximation that we'll have to the joy that the angels share in Revelation 4. Now, no one has to shield their eyes, and the music was not the voice of angels. But there's glory to be found in worshiping together, the same God that the angels worship, and of holding open in front of us God's word that reveals himself. That glorious message finds its climax in chapter 21 of Revelation. And the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making all things new. Then he said to me, write it down, because these words are reliable and true. He also said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, 
the beginning and the end. To the one who is thirsty, I will give water free of charge from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. There will be water for the thirsty. As Jesus told the woman at the well, it's a, it's a metaphor. Well, what is the metaphor getting at? The Bible uses hunger and thirst and beauty to capture what we're longing for. C.S. Lewis speaks of a desire for a far-off country that nothing in this world can satisfy. As the teacher of Ecclesiastes observed, under the sun, what is missing cannot be supplied. But in John and Jeremiah, there's living water that will slake our thirst, bread from heaven which will satisfy forever. It will be like water in a dry and thirsty land. In the Psalms, the psalmist speaks of drinking from the river of his delights, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Beauty fills us with longing. You've seen the wind ripple over the perfectly green fields of corn, or maybe a little baby that smiles at you, perhaps a brilliant sunrise. Maybe it's music that sets your heart longing. C.S. Lewis says, the books or music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of your own past, are good images of what we really desire, but if they're mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself, they are only a scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. The experience of beauty is like wetting an appetite. It's like having a drop of the most wonderful drink and then wishing you could have a whole tankard of it. Or plucking a single fancy hors d'oeuvre and then wishing you could have a whole feast. That longing in each of us is pointing to a real place. One day God will say, to the thirsty I will give water free of charge from the spring of the water of life. It's a thirst that we all share. And in Revelation 4, the image of the cherubim and the angels and the humans together enjoying the infinite glory of God, that's what that longing has been pointing to all along. Perhaps, as you find that longing in yourself, um, you go off in a different direction, trying to slake your thirst. Imagine an only well in the middle of the desert. It doesn't matter which direction you go to abandon the only well, you head off to your own destruction. Now, some things, like, say, drug addiction, are a very quick path to destruction, uh, but there are societally acceptable, even societally, the society will applaud you in some ways that you leave the only well. But either way, you're headed towards God's judgment. 
The next verse in chapter 21, we read, But as for the cowards, unbelievers, detestable persons, murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic spells, idol worshipers, and all those who lie, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. That is the second death. Isaiah speaks of one day seeing the king in his beauty and seeing a land that stretches far. When we see the king in his beauty face to face, we'll be able to say of God's judgment, yes, that is just. The infinite glory of God requires infinite punishment. And if you say, I don't need God's presence in my life, and you keep him at arm's length, then God will say, fine then, you'll have what you want. You won't have God's presence in your life. And to not have God's presence is the definition of hell. So Paul speaks of hell as being eternal torment away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. He will give you what you want. Now, because hell is such a hard thing to wrap our mind around, um, it can easily become what one philosopher calls a thin belief as opposed to a thick one. A thin belief is a belief that you hold as true, but it doesn't actually impact your life one way or another. A thick belief is a belief that guides your actions and your priorities. And I'm suggesting that we should move hell from a thin belief that like, well, it's in the Bible, I guess I'll go along with it, to a thick belief. It's a real place that real people will actually go. Hopefully that will guide your prayers. Many of us have people close to us that are on the path of facing the wrath of the Lamb. Or maybe neighbors where maybe it'd be kind of weird to invite them to church, but not as terrible as the lake of fire. When I became a believer as a little kid, I really wanted to avoid hell. Perhaps you've been to summer camp where the speaker says, raise your hand if you want to not go to hell. It's like, well, sign me up. Now, hell is terrible, which is why the Bible warns us to flee the coming wrath. But the call of the Bible is not merely watch out for hell. The Bible is calling us into a love relationship with the God of the universe. I will be his God, and he will be my son. Suppose Kelly asked me why I chose her. And suppose I said, well, singleness was really hard on me. And I really did not like being single. And then you came along and you were a way to avoid the terrible fate of singleness. And that's why I chose you. That's not honoring to her. So yes, the Bible does speak of the coming wrath. But the reason we seek God is so that we can get God himself. And when we seek God for himself, for the beauty and the joy and the glory that will be ours, that's honoring to him. Just as I married Kelly 
because I didn't want our conversation to end. And she's beautiful and she's strong in the places where I'm weak. If I said I was just avoiding singleness, that would not honor her. The Bible ends with this call. It's from Revelation 22, verse 17. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wants it take the water of life free of charge. Now, the water of life is free of charge to us, but it comes at a terrible cost. The angels sing, with his blood, he purchased men for God. It's like free food. Uh, when you go to a place where they're offering free food, uh, it's free to you, but someone had to pay for it. So it is with the feast of the water of life. Free to us, costly to the sun. The reason you should double down on your commitment to the Lord Jesus is that he's the true source of life. Perhaps you're here uh, because your parents drug you here and you'd rather not have a conflict, or perhaps your spouse is the one that you're keeping happy. Why should you choose Jesus? Well, Jesus is so beautiful that he can only be described in paradox. In chapter 5, John hears that the Lion of Judah has conquered. But then he looks, and it's not a lion, it's a lamb. The lamb is standing in victory on the throne as though slain. And then in a mind-bending reversal, the lamb is the shepherd. And the red blood of the lamb stains our clothes white, making us holy and blameless. So the words, come, Lord Jesus, we call on the king who conquers like a lion by dying like a lamb. I don't know what counterfeit beauty has a hold of your heart. The counterfeit beauty I think is most dangerous to my students is the buffet of counterfeit beauty that's available online. They all have one of these. And people click, seeking the capital B beauty, trying to fill up the emptiness inside, the longing that C.S. Lewis talked about. But down that road, you only find ruined lives, broken hearts, and shattered marriages. If you find yourself trapped, note that no one worships around the throne alone. We together, we seek the source of true beauty. And so if you have in mind of like, well, this is kind of a shameful thing, and so um, just me and Jesus, we're going to kick that habit together, and no one need know, uh, don't kid yourself. I don't know that that's ever happened in the history of the universe. Um, seek help. I tell my students uh, that if they were to come to me um, seeking help with sin that has a hold of their life, um, my respect for them um, would actually go up and not down. Because here's someone 
with their sword in hand, ready to fight and slay the beast. There's many ways to leave the only well and to seek counterfeit beauty. For others, it's money, perhaps it's power, perhaps significance. Uh, some seek it through the grind at work, which in our culture will get you applauded, um, but it's still leaving the only well. What your heart is really looking for is the beauty of the lamb who's standing as though slain. He's the only well in the desert. He's the only source of living water. So let's seek him together. Let's pray. Father, would you unite our hearts to fear your name? Would you help us to be so full of the true joy that's on offer that all the counterfeit joys seem pale and cheap and rotten in comparison? And would you help us uh, to take hell seriously, to speak with our neighbors, to pray fervently for the lost, uh, and to honor you for your great rescue. And in your name, amen.